Let me read for us now James 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord and I hope it is sealed on your hearts. The first time I went to buy a car, I was 25 years old. My dad had encouraged me to to buy a new car and I had never never bought a car before. It had always been given to me, but uh, he was going to give me the, the money for this, and, but he wanted me to go and you know, negotiate my own deal and financing and help my credit out and all that. And so that was the plan. 25 years old and I'd found the car I wanted to buy at a car dealership in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I had done my homework and oh, I was in. And uh, I even read how to buy a car and you're supposed to know your, your credit score. And so I uh, did one of those free credit score online things. And um, got my credit score. It was great credit, the best credit, you could say it. That's how I said it. It's the best credit. And the car salesman said, how's your credit? It's the best credit, the best credit. Um, because I'm 25 years old. I had a credit card that I didn't use. Um, I had gone to school on scholarships, so I, I didn't have any student loans. I hadn't had to pay any money there. I lived in what you would call a cash-free environment. It was me and a bunch of my friends that lived in a house, and we paid our rent in cash, and I don't even know who the, the landlord was. And it was, there was definitely no lease involved, nothing that would trip any kind of debt or credit at all. And I had just come back to the United States, and uh, so where I had been working for a mission organization out of the country, which I found out later meant I didn't have what you would call verifiable income, but whatever that means. I didn't know anybody any money ever. <laughs> so I'm good, right? And so I go to the car dealership and I want this car and the guy asks, how's my credit? Oh, it's the best credit ever. And so he brings me to the finance guy who takes my information and actually, you know, does a legit credit check and comes back and says, there's a bit of a difference between how you view your credit and how we view your credit. <laughs> oh, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? Well, have, Sir, have you ever signed a lease? Huh? No. Have you ever carried a balance in your credit cards? No. Have you ever, you know, paid off any student loans? No. So you don't have good credit. And I'm thinking, no, those are all the things that I thought gave me good credit. Turns out I was totally wrong. And what kind of culture do we live in, by the way? By the way, (laughs) that not owing money means you have bad credit. But that and the lack of verifiable income. I don't make these rules, I just live in them. And so he told me, you know, you should go and, you know, carry a little bit of a balance in your credit card to show that you can pay it off and, you know, sign some kind of lease or do something and <sighs> sigh. I was totally wrong. I had, I had our whole economic system backwards. <laughs> I think it's that way with biblical wisdom sometimes. That people have in their mind what wisdom is They have in their mind what would make somebody wise. 
And they go and check it against what the Bible describes as biblical wisdom. And lo and behold, they have everything backwards. The things they thought, according to the world standards, made somebody wise, in fact, demonstrate foolishness. And the things that the world would describe as foolishness, the Bible refers to as the wisdom of God. Totally reversed. And the world, by the way, is filled with people who fancy themselves wise, isn't it? There's no shortage of people who fancy themselves as wise. They give degrees in their own wisdom. But they don't have anything resembling the Bible's description of wisdom. Earlier, I asked to raise your hand if you had read a particular book. James begins, chapter 3, verse 13, with a similar style question. James is designed to be read to the church, and so here we are. And he begins this little paragraph, this pericope here, with this question. Who is wise and understanding among you? Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands or anything. And this... You know, what happened in James's church world might be uh, better equipped, uh, more apt to be described as our own ABF or adult Bible fellowship kind of environment where you're, you're in your study, you're in your group, 50 or 70 people or whatever in the room, and the leader says, you know, raise your hand if you're going to go to this event, or raise your hand if you're going to do that thing, or raise your hand if you're going to bring food next week, or raise your hand if you're going to be part of this. And how about this question? Raise your hand if you think you're wise. And would you raise your hand? I know that you're too humble to raise your hand, right? You know that wisdom is humility and there's no way you'd raise your hand. And it's circular logic though, really. I mean, are you wise? Raise your hand. Oh, I'm too humble. Wisdom's humility. I'm too humble to raise my hand. So you know the logic that I'm talking about. Are you wise, James asked. Are you wise in understanding? That's how he begins this section. His purpose is for you to take a poll. Do you think, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to do an altar call for wisdom here. But seriously examine yourself. James is asking you this question. Do you think you are wise? How would you answer that question? Because James has a follow-up. If you think you're wise, second part of the verse, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. If you think you're wise, James is saying, then let's check. Let's prove it. I want to give you an outline this morning that I think best captures the theme of this section here. I'm going to call it God's economy. God's economy. The best way to think about this passage is through the concept of being rich in the kingdom. This term of wisdom here, do you think you're wise? It could correspond to, to our question, do you think you have good credit? Well, let's check. And then in verse 18, by a harvest of righteousness, that you'll, you'll receive this harvest of righteousness. We're not in an agrarian society, and so we hear harvest of righteousness, and we think, you know, corn mazes and pumpkins and pumpkin spice tacos kind of thing is what we think of when we think of a harvest of righteousness, but in the Bible, a harvest of righteousness, it's an economic term. It's where your money comes in. You plant, you work, you labor, and the fall rolls around, and you reap the harvest. You reap the reward. You could say you've, you've invested, invested, and your 401k is maxed out. <laughs> it's grown. That's this kind of language. And so James is asking you, are you investing in God's economy? Do you have the right material, the right perspective? Do you have the right credit rating in God's economy? You think you're wise? Well, let's do a credit check. Let's see what kind of wisdom is actually in your pocket. First, 
the commodity. The commodity in God's economy is wisdom. It's wisdom. James begins, who's wise and understanding among you? And he's gonna end with uh, the wisdom from above and the description of that in verse 17. The, the goal here, the commodity, what God values in your life here is wisdom. Now, a brief definition of wisdom. Wisdom is the skill, the skill of applying biblical principles to daily life. That's the definition of wisdom. The skill of applying biblical principles to daily life. I've given you that definition before, but it's worth repeating. Wisdom is most certainly a skill. It's something you can acquire. It's something you can grow in. Very different than how our world defines wisdom. Our world defines wisdom as something innate, you know, more equivalent to IQ, more equivalent to education. If you get degrees and certifications, you specialize in a field, you're wise in that field, so to speak, or you're just, your generic IQ, it transcends fields and specialties, and it's just your generic ability to problem solve in spatial relations and figure things out kind of thing, and you can't grow it. You either have it or you don't. That's not the biblical concept of wisdom. In the Bible, wisdom is a skill. You can grow in it. It's a moral capacity to this. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. All of these biblical principles grow out of your fear of the Lord. If you don't fear the Lord, you're obviously not going to be able to effectively apply biblical principles to daily living, right? You've had this experience if you've tried uh, marriage counseling with non-Christians or uh, you know, relationship peacemaking with non-Christians. You can apply all the Proverbs you want to. You can teach good listening techniques and communication techniques, but you're spinning your wheels because it's not gonna produce spiritual fruit. It just isn't. Or if it does, it's only because of selfish motivations, which undoes the whole thing anyway. <laughs> Biblical wisdom is the skill of applying God's principles to daily life. In your life, there's all kinds of conflicting choices. There's all sundry issues that come up and a diversity of of options and problems and dynamics that aren't expressly described in scripture, but the Bible gives you all the principles you need to lead a life pleasing to the Lord. Wisdom is the ability to gather them. If you find yourself in a situation and you don't know what the Bible says about that situation, that is a lack of wisdom. A wise person would ask people who know the Bible to apply it to that situation. That's wisdom. Learning the biblical principles and how they apply to your life, that's wisdom. Certainly wisdom is better described than defined, but that's my best definition. James even begins, James 1, with this. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask the Lord who will give it freely to you. So if you look at your own life and you say, I don't know how to apply the Bible to daily living, That means you lack wisdom. And so where do you go? You ask the Lord. He is the source of wisdom. Wisdom comes from him. It comes through Jesus, given to you through the Holy Spirit as he opens your eyes to the word. Wisdom is, it's gospel saturated here that because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you are drawn to the word. You're drawn to conformity of Christ because you love him and you want to be like him and the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin, opens your eyes to the word of God and the Holy Spirit is instilling in you a spirit of wisdom. It's a spiritual capacity. He's giving you the spirit of wisdom to conform your life to Jesus Christ. That's biblical wisdom and it comes through the gospel, through faith, through the word of God. In the Bible, listen carefully, wisdom is a moral quality. It is not an intellectual quality. The world is filled with people who are intellectual giants but moral fools. Our world misunderstands, misevaluates, doesn't appraise rightly wisdom. 
And it equates it to intellectual capacity. When the Bible calls somebody, fool, somebody a fool, oftentimes people take it personally. But it, it's not meant as, a, as an insult. You know, the Bible says if somebody's a fool, it doesn't mean they can't cross the street without getting hit or something like that. When the Bible calls somebody a fool, it means they lack the moral capacity to apply scripture to their life. And if you lack wisdom, where do you find wisdom? You go to the Lord through his son and through his word. If you want wisdom, you go to God. And he doesn't grow it on a tree. He grows it in the heart that diligently seeks him through the means of grace and personal study in the word of God. So that's the commodity. That's what God values in people. That's the source of wealth. That's what I mean by commodity. The source of wealth in the standard of James 3 here is wisdom. But what is wisdom's currency? What is the currency in God's economy? Well, that's works. The commodity is wisdom. The currency is works. And works are on display in the life that loves wisdom. And that's what James means in verse 13. Who's wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works. It gets the head, hard hand. Your head has the wisdom. It manifests itself in your heart. And then your heart grows hands and does things. Wisdom is internal. Wisdom is inside of you. You can't see wisdom in someone's life, but it grows out in their life. If somebody says they're wise, how can you tell if they're wise? It's how they're living. It's the works they're doing. Works are the currency that God desires. It's the way that your wisdom is expressed. If somebody says they have wealth, then it's almost like show me the money. If somebody says they have wisdom, well, you would see that through how they live their life. In that sense, there's no such thing as silent wisdom. Wisdom is never purely internal, although it is often wise to keep your mouth shut. (laughs) That's not the extent of wisdom. Wisdom has manifestation and how you lead your life. That's on verse 13. If you're wise in understanding, show it by your works in the meekness of wisdom. That phrase meekness, by the way, is this idea of of strength under control. You have the power of the word of God, the authority of the word of God in your heart, and yet you're being led by it. You have the authority of God himself through the word and the spirit of God himself indwelling you, and yet you are led by it rather than asserting it. That's meekness. Obviously, Jesus is the example of that. The person who is wise has a life filled with works that are seen in the meekness of wisdom. And then in verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. When you are sowing in righteousness, you're sowing in peace, you're doing your works and your works are cultivating peace, you're planting seeds that will grow later. In economic terms, you're wise when you buy things that appreciate and you're a fool when you buy things that depreciate, right? In spiritual terms, wisdom is seen not necessarily in the here and now. It's seen in conduct in the here and now that doesn't produce a return now, but produces a return later. It's planting the seed, knowing that you will sit in the shade one day. Planting a tree, knowing your kids will swing on it one day. Noting that six years from now, it'll bear fruit. That's wisdom. It's long-term perspective. And the kind of works James is talking about here do not give a reward in this world. This world does not honor biblical wisdom. It doesn't reward you for being biblically wise. The works that are associated with wisdom come in the next life. You plant the gospel seed in your life knowing that well, generations will sit in its shade and you will receive the reward in eternity. This is the Sermon on the Mount. 
the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you're storing up for yourself. The wise man doesn't hear my words only, but he does them. He stores his treasure in heaven by keeping the words of Christ. He's sending his treasure ahead. He's not squandering in the here and now. He's investing in eternity. His works have an eternal dimension to them where moth doesn't get to it, rust doesn't decay it, thieves don't nab it. When your works are in heaven, you receive the harvest in the next life. That's what verse 18 means. The harvest of righteousness, it's sown now in peace by those who are making peace. You're not rewarded now, but there will be a harvest you will get later. So you think you're wise? You think you have wisdom? Prove it. Where are your good works, is James's logic. Show me the works. That's how you would demonstrate it. What happens to a person who says, oh, I'm wise. I'm wise. I raise my hand. Me, I'm wise. Where are my works, though? I must have forgot my wallet. (laughs) I forgot my wallet. I don't actually have any works to demonstrate it. What does that say about, and you never know how far out to zoom here in James, what does that say about the person who says they have biblical wisdom, they just don't have works of righteousness, they don't have a moral life, they don't have the meekness of wisdom, they're not leading a pure life, to use the language of verse 17, they're not full of reason when it comes to God's words. What does that mean about somebody who has that kind of life? Well, they're self-deceived, their root is destroyed. If there's no fruit, there ain't no root that's producing the fruit. And where the root is sick, there will be an absence of fruit. That's James's language here. The wise person plants and it produces fruit in his life. This is not unique to James. Paul says the same thing in Romans 6, verse 2. God will render to every man according to his works. Paul is not coming at it from an agrarian perspective. He's coming at it from a legal perspective. He will give every man according to his works. What does he mean by that? Well... When you die, you'll be standing before God for judgment and your works will condemn you. You've broken God's law. You deserve judgment. You've lied. You've coveted. You've lusted. You've borne false witness. You've worshiped idols. You've served yourself. Your works condemn you. But that's not where the story ends because of the gospel where God himself becomes a man, leads a sinless life, takes your sin, your works. He takes your actual works from you that deserve condemnation and he suffers in the place of your works. Your works become his works. He bears God's wrath as if he had done your works because they're imputed to him. He rises from the grave three days later, offering new life to those for whom he died, those who believe in him. And when you put your faith in him, your heart of stone is taken out, your heart of flesh is put in. You put your faith in him and you are converted. His Holy Spirit dwells within you. You now have a love for Christ and you go on leading your life, taking off sin and putting on righteousness, striving against the world, striving against the flesh, striving against the devil, striving to build your life in the conformity of Christ, planting seeds for you to get the harvest later. You're becoming more, you're doing works of righteousness, becoming more and more like Christ. And so then that verse that God will render to you according to your works becomes good news because he died for your bad works and gives you now a life of good works chosen from before the foundation of time for you to walk in them so God will render to every man according to his works as a judgment verse and a gospel verse but it's a gospel verse in light of James 3 you're wise and understanding let's see it 
to the currency of your works. Well, that's the good news. That's biblical wisdom. But that's not this entire passage. In verses 14 through 17, you get a contrast. This is a chiastic passage. In other words, it's moving from the outside in. Verses 13 and 18 say the same thing. Verses 14 and 17 line up. 15 and 16, it's, it's funneling you here, funneling you into the center of what biblical wisdom is in terms of a contrast. And so let me give you a second outline. I'm hoping you won't notice I'm sneaking two sermons in here for the price of one. That's God's economy. Now let's look at wisdom's counterfeit. Wisdom's counterfeit. Because not all that glitters is gold. There's a counterfeit wisdom going on here. The world is filled, as I said, with so-called wisdom. That phrase, wise and understanding, this begins in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you. You know that's an Old Testament phrase. It comes from Deuteronomy, where God tells Moses, raise up people that are wise and understanding among you to lead you. It's Deuteronomy 1, Deuteronomy 4. God tells Moses, if you keep the law, you will be wise and understanding. Your people will be wise and understanding. This is an Old Testament promise. It goes all the way to Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are described as wise and understanding people in a culture that is not but a culture that, remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're with the other so-called wise men. There's a contrast. Just because in verse 13, you're wise and understanding, because you have your good works, doesn't mean the rest of the world recognizes their lack of wisdom and their lack of understanding. Instead, they respond with counterfeit wisdom. Counterfeit understanding. You see the contrast in verse 14, but a contrasting term. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, what's the opposite of wise and understanding? Jealousy and ambition. And it's bitter jealousy. Those two words are paired throughout the New Testament. They speak of the works of the sin, the works of the flesh. They're hostile towards the gospel. True wisdom is not bitter jealousy. True wisdom is not selfish ambition, but counterfeit wisdom is. In fact, that word bitter, it's a word that's used for spoiled drinking water. You'd buy drinking water, you'd expect it to be pure. You taste it and either it's salty or you taste it and it's spoiled, rotten, uh, uh, you can imagine how water would get spoiled back in that kind of world. And it's not palatable. It's not fit for consumption. There's a word for that in, in Greek, and that's this word here. In other words, you hear somebody who says they're wise, but you taste their wisdom, and it is rotten. It is not fit to emulate. Or you, perhaps, you think you're wise, and you begin to look for your good works, and you don't have your wallet, so to speak. Your credit's not what you thought it was. You don't actually have biblical wisdom. What you thought was wisdom is, in fact, bitter it is in fact spoiled it's undrinkable what does that like kind of life look like selfish ambition you're putting yourself forward james says do not boast and be false to the truth that kind of life is a boasting life the grammar of verse 14 is awkward boast is a word that requires a compliment like you boast in your victories, you boast in your strength. The wise man boasts in his knowledge. The Israelites in Jeremiah boast in their, their horses and their, their strong men. It's a word, Paul says, I'm only gonna boast in Christ. It's a verb that requires a, a compliment. But there's no compliment here. Uh, James is saying that with the person with false wisdom, it's not even, he doesn't even have the object to boast in. The person with false wisdom walks around and he just boasts. 
The actual content of his boasting is irrelevant, frankly. He's just a boasting person. He's boasting because his life is filled with bitter jealousy. His life is filled with selfish ambition. And so he boasts. That kind of person often is viewed as wise by the world because they're always talking about how wise they are. <laughs> that is not biblical wisdom. Let me give you some means of contrast here between biblical wisdom and worldly wisdom. First, printed in heaven versus printed on earth. Printed in heaven versus printed on earth. You could say minted that way. Minted in heaven versus minted on earth. <laughs> Biblical wisdom comes from heaven. Look at the phrase in verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. Speaking of earthly wisdom, but godly wisdom, the image here is it comes from above. It's repeated again in verse 18. The wisdom from above is first and then gives you the list. Biblical wisdom comes from God. It descends from above. Biblical wisdom is not man-made. It's not from our sphere. It's not invented by people. Biblical wisdom descends from the God who designed it. This is the same phrase in James 1, verse 17. There, James says that every good and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting due to change. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, and it makes sense. If wisdom is a good and perfect gift, then according to James 1.17, it too should come from above, and that's what you find here. Biblical wisdom comes from God. This is an incredibly important point. Wisdom is not external to God. Don't think God is wise because he conducts himself wisely. Don't think that God is wise because there's a standard of wisdom and God keeps it. Or you can say it this way. Don't think that God is holy because here's a list of what right and wrong is and God matches it, even matches it perfectly. Because do you notice what happens there? That makes you the judge of God. That makes you the judge of wisdom. Instead, wisdom comes from God. God's not wise because he conforms to wisdom. Wisdom is wisdom because it comes from God. Ditto with morality. God is holy, not because he conforms himself to his standard, but God is holy because holiness comes from him. Something is holy if it conforms to God, not the other way around. It's a critical difference to understand because if you think wisdom is left to your own discernment to decide what is or isn't, and oh, thankfully God passed your test and so you're ready to say God is in fact wise, you are the judge. Biblical wisdom does not judged by you. Biblical wisdom comes from God. The contrast then in verse 15 is earthy wisdom. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly is what the ESV says. I like earthy, but earthly. Just of the dirt, you know, it's just stuck here on this planet. And when the Bible calls something earthly, it does not mean that as a compliment. Earthly has the connotation of flimsy, Weak, fickle, frail. This outer tent is wasting away kind of earthly. You know, what good is something from the earth? The earth is gonna perish. The earth is not eternal. God's gonna make a new one. <laughs> That'll be eternal. This one, it decays. It groans. Your flesh decays. The wisdom that is not from above is earthly wisdom. It has its source here. Second Corinthians 1 verse 12, Paul calls it fleshly wisdom. 
It's the kind of the wisdom that people invent, generation to generation, culture to culture. People get together and they decide what is wise and what is not. They, in some cultures, they cast votes on it. <laughs> Let's vote if this is wise or if this is wise. In human earthly wisdom, it is so temporal and so fickle. What one generation calls wise, the next generation calls foolish, doesn't it? I'm reading a biography on Eric Liddell, the Scottish Olympic champion who ended up dying a martyr's death in China. It's an incredible story. If you don't know it, you should read this biography by Duncan Hamilton. But he's a sports writer writing about Eric Liddell and he describes what runners used to go through. I mean, starting all the way in the Greek empire, you know, in the, in the, in the Greek culture, a marathon runner, the best marathon runners, they would do surgery on them and remove their spleens. They thought it made them faster to not have a spleen. This is, I mean, variations of that go all the way through time. In Eric Liddell's life, they were, runners were, you know, drinking molasses before they ran a race. I mean, it supposedly gave them nutrients and they would report cramps and like keeling over, of course, they're drinking molasses. <laughs> Some of them even put something that's, I mean, now you would call it arsenic, they had a different name for it then, but they're putting a poison in their body before they ran because they thought it was getting rid of the bad toxins. French runners would sometimes bathe in champagne before they ran. I'm serious. They thought that it had some effect on their, their ability to sweat. I think it would make them a sticky mess, but they would bathe in champagne. This is what the best athletes were doing that now we would say is foolish. They put lead in their shoes. We have an idiom about that, and it doesn't mean you're fast. <laughs> Unless you're in a car, lead-footed, fast there. What one generation says is wise, the next calls foolish. And that's the same, not just in athletics, that's the same in wisdom. What one generation thinks is good and noble and virtuous and the wise way forward is disdained by the next. I think back of, to philosophy 101 in college and learning what utilitarianism was and you know the phrase, the idea of utilitarianism, whatever is, is, brings the most good to the most amount of people. That's the right thing to do at a given time. The most good to the most amount of people and and there's an obvious, huge, gaping, Bible-sized hole in that definition of good, isn't it? First of all, who counts the number of people? Most cultures are okay with that. Ours fails at that in knowing what a person is. But what about the good part? Who decides what's good? Well, one culture says it's good, the next culture says it's not. So how do you... So much of philosophy is just designed to answer the question, what is good, without reference to God in the Bible. It's amazing that it fails, it fails fantastically. This is Romans 1, people proclaim to be wise, but they themselves profess their own foolishness. That's earthly wisdom. It cannot even tell you why it's wrong to murder or steal or stomp on your foot. It can't even answer that question because it's not from God. Well, that's one contrast. Second contrast, backed by the Trinity versus backed by demons. Godly wisdom is backed by the Trinity. Not FDIC, but the Trinity. And worldly wisdom is backed by demons. Understand that wisdom, of course, comes from the nature of God. When the Father conceives of wisdom, when the Father thinks of wisdom, when the Father images wisdom, what he has in his mind is his Son. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is the wisdom of God. He is the image of God and he is the wisdom of God. This is 1 Corinthians 1.24. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. When the Father thinks of wisdom, 
the image in his mind is the sun. I don't want to preach Proverbs 8 now. I want to save that for tonight, but again, tempting. Wisdom is Trinitarian. The Father conceives of wisdom. The Son embodies wisdom. Together they send the Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom. Ephesians 1.17, God of our, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Father of glory, will give you a spirit of wisdom. Together the Father and Son send the Spirit who brings wisdom to the earth. All of the Trinity is involved in wisdom. That's why the, this description of wisdom here in James 3 looks like this, the fruits of the Spirit, doesn't it? And that's because it's the spirit that produces these in the life of wisdom. The spirit grows these things. It is a spiritual fruit. You see this down in uh, verse 16, or sorry, verse 15. Unspiritual, worldly wisdom is called unspiritual. Notice the flip side of that. That would mean godly wisdom is spiritual. It's brought by the spirit. Whereas worldly wisdom is unspiritual. It's demonic. The devil wanted to be like God and fell. Demons wanted to be like the devil and fell. Adam and Eve wanted to believe the devil and fell. And you fall shortly thereafter. That is earthly wisdom. People on the earth design their own form of wisdom, but you know who's given it power and energy and credibility is the forces of darkness, the devil and his minions. So understand that the war between wisdom of the world and wisdom of God is the war that's fought in the spiritual realm. It's a spiritual battle. The concept of wisdom is inherently spiritual. One comes from God and the Trinity. One comes from man and the earth and demons. A third contrast. The riches of godly wisdom is peace and the riches of earthly wisdom is strife. Godly wisdom produces peace. Earthly wisdom produces strife. Godly wisdom makes people peaceful with each other, yielding to one another. Earthly wisdom gives conflict and selfish ambition and conceit. Conflict. Look at verse 15. This earthly wisdom is unspiritual and demonic. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist. There's that phrase again. We saw it up in verse 14 too. It's repeated That's what I mean by these verses parallel each other. Jealousy, selfish ambition in verse 14. Jealousy, selfish ambition again in verse 16. And where you see that, there will be disorder. There's no rhyme or reason to earthly wisdom. There's no logic to it. What is wise today is not wise tomorrow and doesn't follow any pattern. You cannot figure it out. It's illogical. Or as James says, it's disorder. And that produces every vile practice. Every vile practice in verse 16 parallels being false to the truth in verse 14. If you're false to the truth, you will lead an immoral life. I mean, understand this. There is a one-to-one correspondence between worldly wisdom and worldly living. The person who is living a worldly life possesses worldly wisdom. The person who possesses worldly wisdom will be leading a worldly life. You're not going to be leading a moral life if you embrace the wisdom of the world. It's not going to happen. But worldly wisdom produces all kinds of immorality. Selfish ambition is that phrase. You're going to like this word. I almost skipped it, but you're going to like it too much. In the Greek world, and they had politics in the Greek world. They had a, Rome had a Senate and all that. They had a a word for the kind of politician that entered into politics for his own personal gain. 
So not out of respect of principle, not out of respect to advance the common social good, but a kind of politician who only entered into politics to advance his own self, his own personal interests. And the problem with that kind of politician is that today they're in favor of X, tomorrow they might be against X, depending on you know, which way the wind is blowing because they're in it for their own gain. There's no integrity to that kind of person. There's no integrity to that kind of politician. I know it's hard to imagine that today, but in the Greek world, <laughs> in the Greek world there was such a thing. And they had a word for it, and that's this word. It's translated here in the ESV as selfish ambition. Someone who's only in it for their own gain. It was a political term in the Roman world, but it fits this context of worldly wisdom. And then strife, conflict, animosity, and every, verse 16, vile practice. It doesn't mean that somebody who leads a worldly life will commit every kind of worldly sin, but it means the kinds of people that live worldly life will commit all kinds of those sins. So don't buy it. When somebody says they reject Christ, but they're going to still lead a moral life, don't think, oh, that's going to that's work out well. No, it's, it won't. When someone falls, they're not going to fall very far from where the tree is. So that's this idea of worldly wisdom produces strife. What a contrast with godly wisdom in verse 17. The wisdom from above is first pure, holy, righteous, and peaceable. Produces peace with each other. And by the way, the rest of this list, it's all alliterated in the Greek. All these words start with the same letter in Greek, epsilon. So in Greek, you would read Estin, Epicetea, Erechamai, Epikinos, uh, Euthea, Elias. There's a rhythm to it. If I spoke better Greek, you would hear the rhythm. <laughs> There's a cadence to it. James is conducting this whole passage to this crescendo where it's E, 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 E. It's a tidal wave of these righteous, wise words coming over you. Worldly wisdom is so filled with strife and envy. Godly wisdom is so peaceful. Producing a pure life. Remember that next time you're tempted to sin, if you fall into that sin, it is foolishness. And if you resist sin, it is wise. Gentle, that word gentle, it just means somebody who's willing to submit to, mis- to mistreatment rather than lashing out. That's what gentle is. You're willing to be mistreated and, be, and submit to being mistreated because you know that God is working through your mistreatment. We would consider that bad today, right? The word gentle. That guy can't be a good leader. He's too gentle. <laughs> but isn't Jesus the picture of that? Submitting to mistreatment because he knows the Lord is at work. Open to reason means your life is open to being instructed by the Bible. What a contrast with worldly wisdom, which is unreasonable and disorder. The biblical person filled with reason because they're filled with the word of God. And I won't go through the rest of the list. The time escapes us. But no, this list is righteous good things. One more comment about this list. I hope you notice this list corresponds to the Beatitudes of Jesus in Matthew 5. I mean, look at it more carefully. If you look at listen James 3, let me read you some of the Beatitudes. James 3 says, says worldly, our godly wisdom is peaceable. Matthew 5, verse 8, blessed are the pure. James says, sow your harvest in peace. Matthew 5, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. James says, godly wisdom is gentle. Matthew 5, verse 5, blessed are the gentle. James says, godly wisdom is reasonable. That's described in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 5. James says, godly wisdom is full of mercy. Matthew 5, verse 7, blessed are the merciful. James says that godly wisdom is pure. Matthew 5, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
and even the harvest that you will reap. Matthew 5, verse 9, again, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I mean, you want to talk about a harvest of righteousness. If you sow your seeds in holiness and godliness and wisdom and righteousness, you will reap the harvest of the earth. Meaning the kingdom of God will bring about your harvest, will bring about your reward. Worldly wisdom leads to death. Godly wisdom through the person of Jesus Christ and the inerrant word of God leads to spiritual wisdom and blessings. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Lord, we're thankful that you've called us to lead the life of wisdom. We know you want what is best for us. And so I pray that you would take these words that I said today, that you take the words from James's pen and you would inscribe them in our minds and in our hearts. Help the people leave today leading a life that is more wise than when they came. Lord, we want to examine ourselves and not fail the test. We want to be found leading a wise life. So use your word, make it alive in our hearts to lead the life of wisdom. For those that fail the test, that don't see a life of, of works, that don't see wisdom in their life, I pray that this week you would open their hearts and their minds to the truth of the word of God. You would drive them to the well of your word and cause them to drink deeply there and grow in righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.